Bring me shelter, I will not harm you. Bring me shelter, please. Bring me shelter, I will not harm you. I would shelter you. People would do anything for their families. It could happen to anyone anytime. Somebody in France, somebody in England basically sat down with a ruler and just drew lines on that. There are many different ethnic and religious groups that have been divided across borders, and this has caused a significant amount of conflict. There are a lot of people who need safety. It is really cruel for a country like Australia to have policies that are focused only on pushing people away. What we're seeing is a number of people that remain in a state of limbo. And when non-sustainable land use combines with climate change, the crisis of refugees... I wasn't able to go and play with children. I had to go and really be an adult from a very young age. I think that's something that a lot of migrant children can relate to. Really, it was a dream for me to reunite with my family. I was just praying and hoping that that day will come one day. I think it's very important for people to understand that people have their own dreams as well and they're wanting to change the world with everybody else. Refugee Radio, 855 AM, 3CR. Good morning and welcome to 3CR's Refugee Radio. I'm your host, Amanda, and with me in the studio today, I'm very excited to introduce one of our new hosts, Zach. Good morning, Zach. Uh, Good morning. Thank you so much for joining us, not only today, but uh, you'll be doing a few shows coming up in the future. Uh, Yeah, that's correct. Um, I was brought into the show through a mutual friend of ours named Sylvie Lieber, who um, I believe is one of the most sort of uh, senior people in an organisation called Jews for Refugees, which is an advocacy group within the Jewish community that um, does, you know, takes part in demos run support programs in the refugee community and various other things. And I am not, you know, very involved in the community, but I was involved in a action that was held earlier this year at Border Force in which the annual uh, Passover Seder, well, one of several, <laughs> you know, uh, a Passover Seder was held at Border Force and... It was a very interesting, surreal action. Basically about, probably about 15 of us set up a table and a microphone. And if you've ever seen a Seder table, it's a very sort of elaborate affair. All the accoutrements and the matzah and the maror and all of these things that are sort of symbolic foods that are eaten on that occasion. And yeah, we were basically just allowed to run this uh, sort of three-hour ceremony in protest in the courtyard section of Border Force while disgruntled security guards looked on. I saw some really quite wonderful footage of that and that actually got shared very widely. It was a very impressive, creative action. Um, I, I interviewed someone, I interviewed uh, someone we both know actually, Sivan, about that action as well. It was um, it was quite powerful. So you you were involved in that one, you said. Uh, not in organising it, I just attended. <laughs> but yeah, kudos to the Sivan and the organisers because yeah, it was really great. 
And so today you've got uh, an interview uh, that is pre-recorded that you're going to play for us. Did you want to um, maybe give us a bit of an intro about what's what's in that interview today? Um, yeah, uh, the pre-recording has a little bit of an intro that I recorded earlier that will give some more context. But uh, just quickly, I lived in Indonesia for three and a half years recently. I came back around a year ago and while I was there, I was... Um, involved, you know, on the fringes, I guess, of some sort of refugee activism. I was, I was briefly taught at a school run by an Iranian uh, refugee that he that uh, had been set up in Inner Jakarta, and one of the people who I knew there is an Australian human rights lawyer who was also recently returned, and she was very involved in legal aid programs for refugees and so I asked if she'd be interested in being interviewed for the program and she said yes and so this is an interview that we did recently. Brilliant. Earlier this month there was a series of stories about a wave of protests conducted by refugees in Indonesia. The protests were held in five major cities out the front of United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees offices conducted by refugees, predominantly from the Middle East, who have been living in detention centres and in some cases on the street in Indonesia. And on Tuesday this week, as reported by SBS, a fresh round of protests were held. Perhaps I'll just quote from the article to give a little bit of context. Refugees in Indonesia who claim to be the quote-unquote forgotten victims of Australia's border protection policies will hold protests around the Southeast Asian nation on Tuesday. As Australia has toughened its border protection policies over recent years, about 15,000 refugees say they are now stranded in Indonesia where their human rights are curtailed. One of the protest locations was the Australian consulate at Makassar in Sulawesi, specifically to protest Australia's current resettlement policies. The SBS article also quoted excerpts from a letter that refugees presented to Australian diplomatic officials. Quote, Australia's refugee policies are being hijacked by domestic political issues and refugees are being used as pawns in this greater game. The refugees in Indonesia are the most affected, being singled out to serve as an example and a deterrent to others who are seeking refuge in Australia. Indonesian officials and the UNHCR constantly tell us that our futures are in the hands of resettlement countries, such as Australia, the US, New Zealand and Canada. However, in our frequent correspondence with Canada and the US, they tell us that Indonesia is outside their zone of responsibility. An SBS article from earlier in the month covering the wave of protests quoted human rights lawyer Trish Cameron, who has worked in Indonesia for many years and who I became acquainted with during several years in which I also lived in Indonesia. As Trish has a very thorough knowledge of the issue, I thought it might be useful to catch up with her to get some background about the protests and about refugee issues in Indonesia more broadly. The following interview was conducted in the front seat of Trish's car, the only quiet place we could find on a rainy night in Dandenong last week. The first section that we're going to hear is Trish's response to my question about the context of the recent protests. The protests that are happening at the moment are not the first ones. They've been ongoing on and off over a number of years. Um, the ones at the moment kind of... Um, they had some funding reduced. Some funding that was coming from the Australian government was reduced 
And as a result of that, um, they had to stop registering any new asylum seekers and refugees for assistance. They usually helped uh, anyone that was in detention centres. They could help with some shelter, move people to community shelters, help with a little bit of healthcare um, and things like that. So that led to a situation that people who were destitute and didn't have any savings and had gone to Indonesia thinking that they might be resettled quite quickly and hadn't been. Um, lots of them were living on the street or living in really, really bad, unstable circumstances. And there was a bit of a rush to one of the detention centres in Jakarta, which is called Caladeras. It's an area of North Jakarta. And trying to actually get into the detention centre so they could be registered for assistance with IOM before the cutoff, before the funding cutoff. Um, a lot of them missed out. They didn't have anywhere else to go, so they remained sleeping on the streets outside of the detention centre. And that kind of continued for the next 12 to 18 months. More recently, in the last month or two, uh, some people that were there uh, were becoming quite downtrodden and depressed and there was a lot more medical issues. And you have to remember Jakarta is quite a crowded place, very hot and humid, um, quite polluted. So all of this was affecting, you know, men and women and children that were sleeping on the streets there. So some of these people uh, moved to outside the UNHCR office, which is more in central Jakarta, to try and be a bit more visible. Uh, and then that led to more people deciding to do that. And that led to more people uh, from other areas deciding to do that as well. So that was kind of the background to the current situation uh, where there's been protests in different areas of Indonesia that have a slightly higher population of asylum seekers and refugees. Remembering that it's still quite a small overall population compared to a lot of other countries in Southeast Asia. Could you mention the statistics of how much lower it is in Indonesia? Yeah, so for the last four or five years, the population of asylum seekers and refugees has remained quite stable at around 14,000 people. And this is also thinking that Indonesia as a whole have, has about 250, 260 million people in it. So 14,000 doesn't seem like a big number. Um, if we look at Malaysia, which has a smaller population overall than Indonesia, but they have around 150,000 asylum seekers and refugees. And if we look at Thailand, which also has a smaller overall population, they have about 100 to 110,000 asylum seekers and refugees living on the Thailand side of the Thai-Myanmar border. Um, and they also have about 10,000 or so living around Bangkok. Like, those numbers aren't exactly correct. It's just a ballpark. So Indonesia has a lot less asylum seekers and refugees than other countries in the region. Do you think maybe you could sort of paint a more general picture of these 14,000 refugees in Indonesia, where they're mostly from, the average length of time that they've been in Indonesia, what they've been told about their prospects of resettlement, their legal status in Indonesia, and access to things like work and support? Yep. Um, so the first thing that I think is always really important to say, and this is talking about anyone from asylum seeker or refugee communities, is it's impossible to generalise. It's like everyone in a country outside of Australia believing that every single Australian is the same. Um, people come from all different backgrounds, from all different levels of education, from all different uh, cultural areas. Uh, they like different foods. They like, you know, different religions. Um, so having said that, in Indonesia, the, the countries of origin 
Um, over 50% is from Afghanistan and usually most the majority are from the Hazara ethnicity uh, and then the other major populations there are Somalia, um, Iraq, uh, Myanmar, which is mainly the Rohingya ethnicity, um, and then Sudan, and then other, other ethnicities are kind of grouped together. So there's a smaller amount of people from Iran, um, there's a few from Palestine, there's, you know, various, a big mix of countries. I think the list of countries is maybe... Uh, I can't remember, but maybe like 40 different countries that um, people have come from and registered with UNHCR, but in much smaller numbers. So the majority still um, have come from Afghanistan. Okay. And the, av the average um, amount of time have been in Indonesia? Yeah. Um, it's also a really big generalisation. Uh, it used to be that most people would uh, come to Indonesia and if they weren't trying to get on a boat to come to Australia, then they were resettled more quickly because there was a very small number of people that were going through the process in Indonesia. And since that was stopped by the Australian government and the Operation Sovereign Borders, which was turning boats around, um, the numbers have grown. So since 2013, 2014, and really in 2015, the numbers did peak and go up. And they've stayed around the same ever since then. So that's, if you're talking to people, a lot of them will say they've been, you know, between five and seven years. Uh, there still is people being resettled, mainly to Canada, and there is still people arriving and claiming asylum and registering with UNHCR. Um, but the numbers have remained stable. In Indonesia, uh, the Indonesian government hasn't signed the UN Refugee Convention. So they don't have any obligations to provide rights. And that's, if we look at Australia, where the government has signed the convention, there's certain obligations, uh, you know, right to education, uh, a right to legal documents and to, you know, marry, to be able to get a driver's licence, um, all the things that we take for granted. In Indonesia, that's still not possible. There are other conventions. So there's a convention on the rights of the child, which does say that, you know, all children are entitled to education, children being anyone under the age of 18. Um, and a lot of countries in the region and around the world do try and uphold that because they might not have signed the Refugee Convention, but there's other human rights conventions that do impact across these groups as well. Over the last few years, there's been quite a few refugee schools um, which have been started by people from the refugee community, and they're quite small. I think, you know, the biggest school might have 200 to 250 students. And uh, I know myself around, I think there's around 10 schools now. They're mainly in the Jakarta area and surrounds within a couple of hours of that. And there's a few complex reasons for that as well, which we can go into if you like, but it gets quite complex. Um, so apart from that, there's not a lot of rights that people have. They're not entitled to work. Um, some people have religious marriages, but there's no legal documents to go along with that. Um, they can't travel uh, outside of the country, that, uh, outside of the city uh, that they're registered into UNHCR. Um, some people do move from place to place, but it, if they're caught, they could be put into detention. Um, so really all of the rights that we take for granted, they don't have. Um, in 2000, December 2016 or 17, I should have looked this up, um, there was a presidential regulation signed uh, in Indonesia about refugees from foreign countries in Indonesia. 
And that was a bit more technical and it outlined uh, what happened if someone arrived to Indonesia, which, ministry, which ministerial department was responsible, what they were responsible for, if people were in detention, if people were sick, if a woman was pregnant, if uh, someone died who was registered with UNHCR, where did the responsibility and the obligations lie for the legal side of that? It didn't have any human rights language. Um, but one interesting thing that it did do is it did have the definition that was used in the Refugee Convention. Um, and the other interesting thing is that it didn't differentiate between an asylum seeker and a refugee. Now, for people that don't know, when you arrive to... When you cross a border, um, so you're outside your country of origin and you register with the UNHCR office in that new country, you're then legally considered an asylum seeker. You are a person who's seeking asylum. If you meet the criteria to become a refugee, like the legal criteria, you go through the process, um, and if you meet that criteria, then you are legally recognised as a refugee. So that's the difference between an asylum seeker and refugee, whether you've been through the process or not. Um, and in Indonesia, with the presidential regulation, which is commonly known as the PERPRES, or the refugee PERPRES, because there's lots of different presidential regulations, there's now no difference between an asylum seeker and the refugee. Um, it doesn't make any difference because neither of them have a lot of rights, but it does mean that the language has slightly started to change um, from authorities. So in, in, in Australia, you will still hear a lot of comments by government, some parts of government and in the media about the illegality of, you know, seeking asylum or getting on a boat, which is not actually the correct way of talking about it. In Indonesia, there used to be a lot of talk about illegal migrants and, you know, asylum seekers and refugees, and that's not really happening anymore, which is a good thing, and it's one of the ways that they've moved forward over the last few years. Red alert. Numbers are needed at the Japurung Heritage Protection Embassy camps immediately. Sacred birthing trees on Japurung country need protecting. Over 50 generations have been born on these sites and the birthing trees themselves are 800 years old. These trees are being protected from the Victorian Labor Party's planned highway extension that is set to destroy this sacred dreaming landscape. The cops are coming with eviction orders very soon. The campaign to protect country is led by Japurung traditional owners who are calling on people from all walks of life for support. You can help by joining traditional owners at the camp on Japurung country near Ararat or by donating and putting pressure on Daniel Andrews to protect this sacred land. Visit dwembassy.com for more information and updates. No trees, no treaty. Trish recently had an opinion piece published in the Jakarta Post, one of Indonesia's English language newspapers, and coincidentally my former employer, titled Refugees Need Place to Sleep and Opportunity to Work. In the article, she argued that Indonesia could quite easily give certain rights to its relatively small refugee population. And I'll just quote a section from towards the end of the article. She writes... What is unique to Indonesia is that this situation could be easily addressed with no negative impacts to the Indonesian economy, security, cultures or communities. The number of able-bodied adult refugees in Indonesia that would be able to work to sustain themselves and their families is small. Around 30% of the refugee population are children, 1% are elderly and others live with disabilities and chronic illnesses. 
in a population of 250 million people, allowing a few thousand refugees the right to support themselves and their communities seems like an easy choice and would relieve the need for local governments to allocate budgets to support them. So I asked Trish to elaborate a little on the argument she put forth in this article. Within the region, this is uh, Indonesia, Malaysia and Thailand, over the last few years at least, there has been a little bit more interest from government and from advocacy groups in uh, refugee rights. Um, There's not a lot of refugee rights in any of those countries yet and none of those countries have signed the Refugee Convention. But there has been more discussions about um, putting domestic regulations into place, whether that's possible and what those regulations would look like without having to take on the full obligations of signing the Refugee Convention. So it's happening in different ways in different countries. It is something that in Indonesia has kind of... It's not a big thing there. There's a lot of issues that the government's focused on in Indonesia um, to do with its own population and vulnerable parts of the community, uh, the Indonesian community. But it is something that has slowly started to be discussed a little bit more in in meetings that are happening across, you know, with advocates and governments and not-for-profit organisations and things like that. Um, So one of the things that has come up since the population has stabilised, since resettlement numbers around the world have decreased dramatically, um, is the options are for asylum seekers and refugees either to rely on charity or to be able to sustain themselves, unless they happen to have a lot of money that they've bought with them, which, you know, the vast majority uh, don't arrive with much. So looking forward into the future, what is the best thing to do? Um, A lot of governments, including the Australian government, put out information what they want the community to know. Um, But if you look into the complexities of any issue, you'll find there's a lot of different opinions on what should be happening. And that's the same with asylum seeker and refugee issues in the region. Um, Should they be forced to be destitute? Should more money be given to the UNHCR or different UN bodies? Should more money be going to local aid in order to support these communities? Or is there a possibility to explore and have discussions about what would it look like? How could we give rights to this group of people Um, Would it involve giving rights across the board? Would it involve giving rights to people in certain situations, certain ages, certain skill sets? So there's a big discussion to be had there. Um, And we're only, you know, really at the very, very, very beginning of whether that discussion will be able to take place or not. But these are the sorts of issues that uh, advocacy groups are looking at and are hopeful of uh, having more discussions with the government about. Not just in Indonesia, but in lots of countries around the world where this sort of thing is happening, and especially in Malaysia, Thailand and Indonesia. Um, And also with regards to what's happening in Indonesia, um, resettlement numbers around the world have decreased. So anyone that's registered with UNHCR in Indonesia prior to, you know, four years ago or so, Australian government has said they will never be accepted for resettlement in Australia. Um, in America, the numbers of the resettlement numbers that America accepts has dropped and dropped and dropped again. It's much less than half of what it was um, under the Trump administration. Uh, I was reading the other day that a lot of the resettlement agencies that existed have started to close down because there's no one coming through. So this is happening across the board. Resettlement numbers are, are small. We used to say 
less than 1% of recognised refugees will ever have the opportunity to be resettled. And a more recent update from UNHCR, there's lots of different statistics that come out that are looked at in different ways. But one of them that I was reading is that number has dropped to 0.04% of recognised refugees will ever have the chance of being resettled. And that's happening on a global scale, but we've seen the same thing repeated in Indonesia. Um, resettlement numbers have dropped. Uh, at the moment, the main resettlement country from Indonesia is Canada, and that option is really only on the table if you're one of the most vulnerable. So you're a single woman alone, if you're LGBTIQ community, um, if you have serious medical issues, which can include mental health issues, um, or, you know, seriously traumatised. These are the sorts of criteria that you're needing to meet to even have a chance of being resettled now. Uh, this has often meant that a lot of the younger single men will never have a chance of being resettled. Uh, and that's something that over the time I've been in Indonesia, you've seen the community start to realise that. Also, within the last 18 months to 24 months, uh, UNHCR's Indonesia office was actually going out to different refugee communities, to groups in detention centres, to refugee learning centres, and actually sitting down and, and speaking with communities and saying, you know, these are, these are the statistics now. The chance of resettlement is very, very low. There is a chance that you may never be offered resettlement and you have to consider what you choose to do. Like, if it is safe for you to return to your home country, you might want to think about that. If it's not safe for you to return to your home country, just get, you might be in Indonesia for a really, really long time. And that was a big shock to the community. You could feel the depression sweep across the community with all the different networks and community leaders and people that I was interacting with. Um, but as a result of that, we started talking to people a lot. Well, if this is not an option and this was something you were focused on, what else do you want to do with your life within the confines and the restrictions that you are faced with now? Like they don't have choices about their future, they don't have rights, um, but they still do have some ability to choose for themselves. So, you know, you have seen a lot more people becoming interested in starting their own programs to help their community. Um, there's been a lot more craft groups, there's been um, refugee schools have had more support, um, information centres ran by refugees about helping other refugees to learn about the culture that they're moving into, the language that they're moving into, um, where where good places to live are, where they can shop, all of those sorts of things that we take for granted, that when you move to a new country and you don't know the language or the culture or the public transport or even how to put credit on your phone, these are really difficult things when you're already traumatised and have, um, are fleeing persecution. So we've seen a really dynamic uh, refugee-led Thing happening across the communities. And it's really complex, as I said before, all of these things that we've talked about are kind of feeding in together. So one thing might not have happened without the other thing happening. I'm Mauro Durante from Canzoniere Grecanico Salentino. This is 3CR855 on your IM dial. Please subscribe. The community is important. The spirit of community is the most important thing, so subscribe.